Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, 26 through 31. We continue in our sermon series. Here is the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over every, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with all its seed and its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Quoting Oprah Winfrey, I want to talk for a second about affirmation and self-worth. We live in a world that is absolutely obsessed with affirmation and self-worth. Almost every counseling situation, almost every book on the bookshelf at the bookstore or specifically at Walmart has to do with you loving yourself, learning and finding your own identity and finding your own purpose. It's deeply woven into the fabric of humanity. Here's what Oprah Winfrey said to a group of college grads at Harvard. The common denominator that I've found in every single interview is that we all, humanity, want to be validated. We want to be understood. I've done over 35,000 interviews in my career, and as soon as that camera shuts off, everyone always turns to me and inevitably, in their own way, asks this question. Was that okay? From President Bush to President Obama, I've heard from heroes and housewives, she said. I've even heard it from Beyonce. In all of her Beyonce-ness, she finishes performing, hands me the microphone, and says, was that okay? The question I have for you is, why is that the case? Why do we all seek affirmation? In fact, if I went through the room today, and I started with Hank, and I began to say everything I appreciate and approve of about Hank, Hank, you can grow a magnificent manly beard. Hank, you got a great truck out there. Hank, you got a great family. And I went on and on and on and on about Hank. You would feel uncomfortable, but laying in bed at night, you'd be thinking, man, that was awesome. You know, yes, that was awesome. Affirming things that you're good at. Affirming things that uh, other people may not see in you, but you see. You're the one that sees it. I see these things in you. We all love approval, acceptance, affirmation. Every single one of us. There's not a single person in here, if they got encouraged, would say, please don't do that anymore. That's really annoying. I hate being affirmed. It's just simply not the case. In fact, J.R. Vassar in his book that I highly recommend called Glory Hungry, uh, Glory Hunger, I would encourage you to go get it. Here's what he said about himself. I sit on trial every day in the court of human opinion, craving a positive verdict to be handed down on me from, juror, from a jury of my peers. I'm constantly stacking up the evidence 
trying to sway the court to bestow upon me its approval. I argue my case for people's acceptance and appreciation. This happens at school. It happens in the workforce. It happens across the board. And in fact, that is the reason that gossip and slander exists as well. Because if I can slander others, I can feel better about myself. If I can't get the approval of others, at least I can convince myself I'm not as big of a jerk as that person. Or I'm not as big a gossip as that person. <coughs> Even things for God, as Gerald Vassar says, I have one guy when I do things for God. I have one eye on God and one eye on another person longing for the other person to see my one eye on God. So I'm looking to see, will anybody else validate my living a life for the glory of God? Because I surely would want to be praised from others for being the man who loves the glory of God. So my eye is scoping. Will anybody notice? I'm the one who doesn't care about the praise of man. And please tell me about it. The irony is thick, is it not? We're always seeking approval. You see this in school? All over the place. I mean, that's why we do so much of what we do. Uh, counseling situation often gets turned into just self-worth conversations. Is there a better way? Why is that the case? Well, here's one of the reasons. The primary reason, you were built for glory. You were built, humans were built gloriously. We're going to get to some pieces of how that gets screwed, screwed up here in a little bit. But think about this. Today, we're looking at the crescendo of creation, the grand finale. You go to, uh, to a fireworks show, and you get to the grand finale, and it's this big crescendo, and it goes on for three, five minutes, however long, and you just sit, and you stand in awe. And here is creation. Think about all the things that happened before the crescendo, before the grand finale. The universe spoken into existence, massive amounts of, I mean, billions amounts of species on this earth made. We went through it last week. You see just the cosmos, gases, complexity. Uh, we talked about the mosaic in the St. Louis Basilica. Talked about how it talk, took 76 years to put this magnificent um, mosaic together. Uh, and with all these 41 billion pieces of glass. And then we think about that and it just pales in comparison to the human body. It pales in comparison to the complexity of a dragonfly's eyeball. Do you know a dragonfly can see infinitely more color? I forget how many color, well, How many more colors, Jordan, was it? Then somehow or another, scientists have figured out that a dragonfly can see more colors than the human eye. There are more colors to see. Do you realize that? It's amazing. Dragonfly, just you think, like, what in the world? Like, dragonfly, really? Yeah, and this, this is what God has done. And then we get to the end of creation, all of that on day six, and God says, let us make man in our image. Nothing else in all creation can image God except for men and women. We are built for glory. We are built gloriously. In fact, we get a judgment from God after he created man and woman and created everything else. And he said, behold, they are very good. This bestowing of approval upon his creation. And to this day, that echo, that judgment, echoes through the human heart. We feel it and we want it. We want approval. We feel it. We were built for it. The grand finale, the crescendo. Look in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion. And it goes on. First, God said, we don't get any other 
point in Genesis chapter 1 where we find collaboration. Although, clearly, Father, Son, and Spirit were work, at work creating everything. Here, to create man in their image, we find collaboration for the first time in Genesis chapter 1. Let us, we see this divine conversation happening where we begin to say, God, let, okay, then God said, let us, God speaks of himself, the singular God speaks of himself in plural form and is having this conversation and says to the Holy Trinity in all of its complexity, in all of God's simple complexity, the Father, Son, Spirit say, let us make man in our image. Clearly, because he created men and women, Men and women both are created in the image of God. The question then becomes, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There are three primary things. And when I say this, uh, please know that these three things, it's not an exhaustive list. And everything that we've gone through, through Genesis, we have missed massive amounts of things that we could talk about. There's just so much to Genesis, to every chapter of the Bible. There's so much. So we're just, when, we, when I give you these three, these are not just uh, you know, an all-inclusive list. This is just a simple list of three ways that we are created in the image of our Creator. So, number one, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Number one, they are like their Creator. Humanity will rule the earth. Image bearers would have dominion and responsibility. We see this as chapter, or as verse 26 continues. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. One of the ways that humanity imaged God is that humanity would have this huge responsibility. We would share in the rule and the reign of God over the earth. Responsibility. In the same way God has dominion over everything, we would be the under dominion, dominion holders, and we would have this responsibility to build and create <coughs> and to care for the things that were created in this world. What a tremendous gift. Here, Adam and Eve, you have everything. All of it. And it's fascinating how they focus on what they don't have. Is it not? You have all this. Except that tree. We want the tree! Why are you holding back on us? It's like, wait, wait a second. You have ever, I'm giving you everything. No, we want the fruit from that tree. So, first way is that they will share in dominion and responsibility. The second way is that the male-female relationship in marriage would represent the image of a functioning community. Marriage would contain love and the giving of self to each other. So, the second way humans bear the image of God is that we share with each other self-sacrificial love. We, li we can live for the, the, the goodness of each other in a self-sacrificial way. That's what, how intend, human relationships and human marriage was built to exist in a self-sacrificing, sacrificing, living for the benefit of the other way. The third way we image God is that we can reason and we have, that we have a moral standard, we can communicate and we can create. Not create out of nothing, but we can create uh, art, uh, beautiful paintings. Jordan can do that. We talked about this the last few weeks. And uh, we've joked and we'll just continue on. And I can create nothing. <laughs> These are the ways that we image God. These things cannot be said, although there are relationships, for instance, between elephants. Uh, you know, they can remember for a very long time, right? No, you, if you have a good memory, you remember like an elephant. Um, but they're scared of mice. I mean, they're not that cool. Um, but uh, we look and we see in all creation, we see a difference bestowed upon male 
and female, God's image bearers. We are built, we are the grand finale. And there is dignity and worth in that. We are built gloriously. In fact, Jonathan Edwards says this, uh, and I'm taking this from a book that I've been reading, just a fantastic read. And here's what he says about humanity before the fall. Before the fall, as God created him, speaking of male and female, he was exalted and noble and generous. Before the fall, his soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love, whereby it was enlarged, speaking of the heart, to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. What do they need? And not only so, but it was also confined within such a narrow limits as the bounds of creation, but it went forth in the exercise of holy love to the Creator. So it was not just limited by they weren't just limited by creation. They could have this communion with God in a special way. And abroad, upon the infinite ocean of good, and it was, as it were, the human heart swallowed up by it and became one with it. There was this oneness with Adam, Eve, and God. They walked in the cool of the day in the garden. They spent time together. They shared in responsibility. This was what God built humans for. More than just human, verse 27, not only uh, were humans created in the image of God, but we've already talked about it, male and female. God didn't just make asexual beings. He created male and female, and there is with great intense intentionality that he did that. Society would tell you that, we are, that, that, uh, that biology, and not only that, Zootopia will tell you that biology doesn't matter, and newsflash, Zootopia got this wrong. Great, cute movie, other than that. But um, biology does matter, and it's God's design. And for all of us in this room, we have grown up in a society where male and female roles were something that's archaic, and it's something that has no place in modern society. And the Bible is going to say, no, that's not true at all. It actually does matter. And if you're a man in this room, God says things to you as a man. Some of the things we're going to be talking about next Tuesday night and every other Tuesday that follows are things that God specifically calls out for you, men. There are responsibilities that God has laid upon you, and it's our responsibility to walk in those. Then, ladies, it's your responsibility to find out what God has said to you, and there is great intentionality. It was no accident that God created you as female. Here we see it's clearly God's design. It wasn't some asexual, bland humanness that God created. He created male, female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, it's fascinating because we see that there's relationships within the Trinity because we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God said, let us make man in our image. There has been debates over the years that some had said, well, well that, that was uh, God referring to angels. Okay, God was referring to angels, not to the Godhead. Or that God was referring to the rest of humanity, or the rest of creation, uh, and then said that we are created in that image, this complex design of creation. And it's, it's all simply false. Where in the Bible are we told anything, but we're created in the image of God? And so here, God, Father, Son, Spirit, let us make man in our image. And now, male, female, we are gloriously bestowed with gender. We're, we're equal... We're fully equal, but we're unique. This is the exact same as the Godhead. Full equality and yet uniqueness between personhood. Jesus can say, I and my Father are one. And then clearly, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus was with God, and the Word was God. Huh? Mystery. 
glorious mystery. That is the image we're created in. There is certainly glory in male and female. And then we're going to get to the differences between male and female a little bit longer, a little bit further along. When we get into Genesis chapter 2, we're going to get into the complexities of what God has said to men and what God has said to women. But for now, that is enough. Verse 28 says this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God tells the man and the woman together both to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and take charge over everything. Now, this is a small window into what our eternity will be. Small window. Our eternity will be better than this. But for those who are in Christ, you'll actually do this one day. We, will, we are heirs of the world. Jordan reminds me of something that uh, kind of clicked in, in her mind on a sermon that I preached a while back on, Genesis, or on Ephesians chapter 1. And it was, if, it was, if we're going to inherit the earth, why do we need to go in debt for a boat? If we're inheritors of the earth, why do I have this, this insatiable desire for more now? You'll get it. This is a small window into what we will experience for eternity. We will reign on this earth. The dwelling place of God is with man. And we will live in a city whose doors will be open and we will be able to go to and fro throughout this world. And I think like Stephen, like a Stephan or whatever in, uh, in Urkel, remember when he had that molecule machine and he could go to Paris and he could go back just by this machine? Who knows the glory and what we'll be able to walk into when Eden is restored and so much more. Who knows how we will be able to reign on this earth, but it is going to be wonderful and glorious. Right now, even in the presence of God, right now, if people have died, they're in the presence of God, but they're not currently in their resurrected body on this earth, reigning on this earth. But I'll tell you, even now, nobody that's in heaven is sad that they're there. Nobody. Now, we certainly are sad, but nobody in heaven is sad that they're me. I'm telling you, when we are reigning on this earth, we are not going to waste time fiddling our thumbs, dreaming about the times that we were on earth. It is going to be glorious. This is what he charged them with. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it. In verse 29, it gets so awesome. It says, and God said, behold, I have given you every yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. And I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. Do you see the generosity of God and His design? Here's everything. I've created everything, and I'm not going to give everything to the animal kingdom. I'm going to give everything, all that I've created. Here's a gift. What a gift, right? Here's the world. Here's the earth, Hank. Hank's always my illustration because he's always right there. It's always Hank. <laughs> Here's the earth, Hank. What a gift. Now that's an inheritance, right? Like the Heavenly Father bestowing upon His creatures, those His image bearers. Here, you share with me in dominion and rule over all this. Wow. The generosity of His God. Verse 31 of our God. Verse 31. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. 
So God looked at everything and he came down with a gavel, a judgment. Day six. Looked at everything. Looked at Adam and Eve. Looked at the sunsets that we know nothing of because we've only seen broken sunsets. Everything he created and he said, that's good. Approval. Validation. The word of God, the judgment of God coming to Adam and Eve. You're good. You're good. But here's the deal. We cannot rightly preach a sermon, even if it's in Genesis chapter 1, in some sort of disconnected way from Genesis chapter 3. Because as we know, something went wrong. And that judgment of very good went beyond in the heart of Adam and Eve the point it was supposed to go. Genesis chapter 3 tell us, tells us of Adam and Eve's fall. It's Adam and Eve's story, and it's your and I's story. The judgment, very good, went beyond in their heart, and somehow or another, sin crept in through the accusation of the enemy, Satan, and a lie was believed. You know why God won't let you have that tree? Even though He gave you everything else, it's because He really doesn't love you. He's holding back on you. And the human heart, given everything, Adam and Eve, given absolutely everything, a garden that is perfect, Adam failed in his responsibility and stood right by his wife and watched her by a lie that God was holding back on her. The human heart has a massive ability to see all the ways that God is holding back on us. God, I should have more. And here is Adam and Eve given everything. Riches? There's no riches in the world that compare to owning the world. They had everything. Everything. And the one thing they didn't have They finally believed the lie and said, God, you know what? You are holding back on me. And they took the fruit. Eve took the fruit, ate, bit into it. And God had told them, the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. They didn't physically die that day. They spiritually died. And we're going to get into that again in a few weeks. But here's what happens. And this is again Jonathan Edwards about the human heart, the human condition, about this glory we all long for. Here's what happened. After the fall. But as soon as Adam had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost. And all its excellent enlargeness of man's soul was gone. And thenceforth he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space, circumscribed and closely shut up within himself, it, when it, in itself, to the exclusion of all things else, the spiritual death being enclosed to self. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very dimensions of selfishness and and within himself and became totally governed by a narrow and selfish principle and feeling. Self-love became absolute master of his soul and the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. Here's the problem. Humanity from that point forward, and we see it in Adam and Eve, 
They wanted glory for themselves and they were not satisfied with giving glory to God. They wanted God to worship and honor them and they wanted everything and they wanted to be like God. It was not enough for God to bestow glory upon them. They wanted the very glory that God himself had. When you look out there in our world today, in a life, in our world today, as I open the sermon, about affirmation and all of this, the, the craving that we have for the affirmative words to come over us, that's echoes of Eden. And here's the problem. People think generally, and if you've heard this before, if, if you're really my friend, you're going to approve of me no matter what. You'll love me no matter what. You may have even have said that before as a child. A uh, child in our, in our world can get the, have the posture that a good parent is one that just approves of me and loves of me no matter what. That's popular in our day. It's the dumbest stuff ever. It's just so stupid. Uh, you know that, right? I mean, just a friend is one who just pats you on the back no matter what as you drink poison. No, that's not friendship at all. But here's our problem. We have actually bought the lie that the worst person out there, okay, and sign me up as the worst person out there, that if nobody else can see good in me, here's the lie that humans have bought. Well, God would see good in me. If God exists, he would affirm me. He would approve of me. And it's a lie from Satan himself. Because after Genesis chapter 1, after Genesis chapter 3, different judgments began to be handed down from God. And here, I want you to just walk through this with me real quick. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis chapter 6, we see God saying that I'm sorry I created humanity. I see all of the sin that's out there. And His only way to us to communicate the le level of difficulty that this was and this level of sorrow that it brought to His heart was saying, I, I'm sorry I even made them. And He wiped us out, humanity out, with a flood. The judgment that came down from God, what humanity had earned from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6 was death. And then what Sodom and Gomorrah earned in Genesis chapter 19 was a judgment of death. In the book of Joshua, we see the Canaanite cities, 31 of these cities, and all their inhabitants, even down to animals, the judgment that they earned from God was death. It wasn't you were very good any longer. It was death. And then fast forward to the most vicious cruel expression of God's righteous wrath that we can ever imagine. It wasn't the book of Joshua. It was the cross of Christ. And we see two judgments happening. The first judgment is why so many look to the cross and they see it as offensive. Because it says, it stares every human in the face. And this is what Billy Graham says. So why people find the cross offensive because it looks you right in the face and God says to you, you're a sinner. The judgment that God has put on your life, what you have earned, Post-Genesis chapter 3, for us, we have thrown away the Genesis 1, chapter, uh, Genesis 1 judgment. We said, no, nope, that's uh -uh, not enough for me. We sought to get glory for ourselves, And the judgment that God now gives upon all of us in this room is one of death. Your life just simply doesn't measure up, Jared. No, you think I'll be easier on you than everybody else? Everybody else may pat you on the back. But I'm telling you, son, you're not my son. You're my rebel and you deserve death. That's the judgment of God. But that's all Mr. Tell me his name again. That's uh, all Mr. Housewright ever heard. He didn't hear the second part of that. He didn't hear about what Christ has done. And, but in fact, this is why so many people reject the gospel. 
is because we, we hear this echo of Eden, this longing for affirmation in our heart. We reject it because we believe that if God is, if really God exists, He would just simply affirm of me. He wouldn't tell me I'm a sinner. That's why the notion of humanity being generally good is so widely accepted, even sadly in some Christian circles. And so the message of the cross is rejected. Humanity is unaware of Genesis chapter 3. We hear the echo of Genesis chapter 1. We want it so bad. But we think we can get it just in and of ourselves. But this second way to respond to God's new judgment is to see the cross as a path back to glory. How do we get this judgment returned upon us? How do we get glory restored because we threw it away? How do we one day get it back? Well, that's the second judgment on the cross. You see, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Adam was in a glorious garden, tempted by a serpent, and he failed to do what God called him to do. Jesus came, lived, and in a desert of despair, the enemy came and Jesus obeyed. In the garden again, in John chapter 17, he was tempted by the enemy and he prevailed and he obeyed the word of the Lord and he submitted to God and said, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus did all the things that were commanded and he did perfectly what we were commanded to do. And so he goes to the cross and he earns this judgment. You guys have heard me talk about the gospel in this way before. He earns this judgment in his baptism. Well done. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And because he was perfectly obedient to his father, that judgment maintained. And on the cross, he earned a judgment. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the truth of the great exchange is this. He took your judgment. And by God's grace, for those who are in Christ, we get His judgment. And here's where glory now gets returned to us. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me. And Andy, you can go ahead and come up. I'm almost done. Starting verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also what? glorified. Here's the reality about you and I. Christ came and He won not only His glory, but we will be glorified. I hesitate to say this because it sounds so odd. Our glory will be reinstated and we won't fight for it in wrong ways. We will receive the glory that's bestowed upon us and we will lay down those crowns of everything that's bestowed upon us and we will turn it right back to God and we will say, you deserve all praise, glory, and honor. Glory to the Lamb! And friends, that is our mission and purpose here today is to give Him glory already. Glory, Genesis 1, will return. Glory will be returned, but it is only because of the cross of Christ. It is not because of our earning. It's not because of our effort. It's not because we have somehow separated ourselves from the rest of humanity and then God will recognize our glorious pursuit of Him and then bestow glory upon us. It is solely by 
the grace of God. So this morning, the proper response is not to glory in ourselves. We've already sang about it. It's to boast in Him alone. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. It is the thread that ties Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Jesus will return. And because of His work, by God's grace, we will be glorified and we will reign on this earth with Him. And we will once again be given a gift. Here, here's the earth. And we won't screw it up because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You um, for creation. I thank You for creating us for Your glory. And we have two responses here today. (coughs) We can stay in Genesis 1 and just hear that echo and just seek glory for ourselves and seek affirmation for ourselves and keep living for that, the praise of people. And we can be a slave to that for the rest of our life. We can demand it from you. We can do that or we can respond in the right way. and We can see the cross of Christ and agree with you that we have rebelled. Even though you gave us everything, we sinned against you. And yet you loved us while we were yet sinners. You died for us. And Jesus, you came and you were the perfect image bearer in our place. And because of your grace... One day we'll return to Eden, a greater Eden than Eden, because there's a slain slain lamb there for us to glorify. Father God, help us, strip us from seeking glory for ourselves, and help us to glorify you by your grace and you alone. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. Holy Spirit work. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.